let us just suppose that we're invaded by a, um, an enemy that actually had a moral core. Mm. And they said, we're going to march all of you Americans who said nothing through the Planned Parenthoods. And we're going to say, did you say nothing while this was going on several blocks away? We're going to, walk, we're, we're going to make you look at the mutilated bodies of adolescents yeah. when you said nothing as their sex organs were removed. Yeah. I do not want to be counted on the side of those who said nothing. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. You know where he's filming this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the Murray County Courthouse in Columbia, Tennessee. Larry, you look like Panama Jack got together <laughs> with Colonel Sanders. And I honestly can't say anything negative about anything. It's, it's fantastic. I wish I could pull that off. But more than anything, I wish that I had that beautiful, beautiful silver mane that just demonstrates <laughs> godly wisdom on top of your head. And, and my shoes. <laughs> and my shoes. I'm sponsor. buying those shoes. I'm going to go. Sponsor. I'm going to go find Don't that guy. Love the shoes. And I'm buying those right. shoes to the Argyle socks. Boy, I tell you what, you got to be like me. Just don't wear any. <laughs> well, I'm with my friend. Chad Prather, how you doing, Chad? Good, buddy. It's good to be with you. Uh, how do you respond? What do you think of this Jason Aldean song here? You know Jason. Yeah. And uh, this song has, has been, you know, very jarring um, to some on the left. And I just kind of look at it and go, this is almost kind of typical Toby Keith. Yeah. I mean, how do you respond to this? What do you think? Well, there's been a lot of songs in country music. And there have been a lot of songs in music, period, that have, uh, you know, had the same messaging. Why this one? Why why is this one suddenly so triggering? Well, in a nutshell, it's because everybody knows Jason Aldean and his wife Brittany are conservatives, 
particularly they've been Trump supporters. So let's just put that out on the table. That's what it is. Anyone who watches that video or listens to the lyrics or reads the lyrics of that song and immediately a black person pops into your brain, you're the racist. Yeah. That song inherently isn't. And what they're trying to do is they're really having to reach to try to make this a racial thing. Now, if you noticed in the video and you watch it critically, you're hard-pressed to find a person with black skin being depicted anywhere in that video. Now, you might assume that somebody under one of those hoods that's doing a smash and grab or a stick up, you know, robbery, whatever. Maybe they are black, but you don't see that. Most of the people in that video, in the actual media footage that he uses in that, have white skin. In fact, they said this was a pushback against the BLM riots in the summer of love of 2020. Most of those riots are actually Antifa type riots. So again, to make this about race is a stretch. So then they say, well, he filmed it in front of the Maury County Courthouse in Columbia, Tennessee where there was a race riot in 1946. Well, we don't have to go back to 1946 to find race riots. Again, we just talked about the summer of 2020. They were, you know, burning down cities all across America. And then they said, well, they, they hung, a, hung a young boy by the name of Henry Choate in 1927 at, there at the courthouse. Well, Henry Choate was accused, uh, maybe wrongfully, we don't know, but, you know, in the Deep South in 1927 in Jim Crow America, you probably didn't get a fair trial. As, as, a, as a young black man. He was accused of, of sexually assaulting a young white girl. Um, and they came, they pulled him out of the jail cell, they hit him in the head with a hammer, which killed him, and then they drug his body behind a vehicle, and then they hung him, hung his, his dead body from the courthouse. If you gotta go all the way back 100 years to find a race crime like that, you really are reaching deep. I mean, there's every city in America has some story hey, like that. Could we maybe find stories like that in places like, say, Boston and Detroit, <laughs> right. and New York, and LA? I, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you're if you're really reaching back through history and saying, okay, man's inhumanity to man, well, we can go back eons and millennia and find examples. Reginald after, Denny, of course, <laughs> over and over again. So, so to make this, you know, and then of course the second verse, he says, "I've got a gun that my grandpa gave me." And if you, they say they're going to round those up, well, if you're going to try that, it's going to be hard to do it in a small town. Oh, he made it about gun violence. No, it's not. It's just saying that the values of a small town tend to be different from those in a big city. I, the, the issue there, and again, I don't go to Jason Aldean for my political philosophy. I don't go to a guy like that and really try to hear what his critical thoughts are <laughs> on society and culture and, you know, the, how I should look at the world sociologically. I, Jason Aldean's not my guru. He's not my oracle in regard to that. He's a great entertainer. I won't say he's the brain trust, you know. Uh, he's been outspoken. His wife has actually been more outspoken than he has. Yeah. And sometimes I'm thinking, I bet he wishes she would shut up. But it is what it is. And they put a target on, on his back for this. I mean, this song's been out since May. And they just decided when suddenly the video comes out that now they're going to put a target. And here it is at the time of this taping. We're in late July. So <clears throat> it's, a, it's a reach. It's a stretch. But, but the, bigger, the bigger issue in conversation here is this is the world we're living in. If, I, if I'm a white, heterosexual, Christian, conservative male that oftentimes wears cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. And you are. And I am. And, I, you know, we joke about it. I say, you know, I come from a family of musicians. I'm the least musician of all of my family members. I come from a family of cowboys. I'm the least cowboy of all of them. But I'm the only person in my family that was ever able to take those two things and make any money with them. <laughs> so I'm okay with that. I, I'm, I'm enough of both of those things that I can use it for what I do, my entertainment purposes, 
and it, and it is a foundation of who I am uh, historically. I know where I come from, and therefore I know who I am. And so uh, that, though, those characteristics, white heterosexual Christian conservative male, makes me public enemy number one. By and large, with the, with the mainstream, with the cabal, with the elites, with the, with the voices that, that overpower everything else in the platforms, I'm public enemy number one. I have to do penance for the rest of my life and supposedly, according to them, apologize and grovel at the feet of that altar that has been set up that says atrocities were committed by white men historically in this country and therefore I have to, I have to repent for those sins for the rest of my life. Will I ever receive forgiveness? Absolutely not. Now, it doesn't matter whether or not my family was poor farmers from originally southern Mississippi and they didn't, they, they didn't, have, they, they didn't own slaves, didn't have the money to own slaves. They, they, you know, Hattiesburg, Mississippi and the surrounding areas where my prathers come from, they, they, they weren't slave owners. But I, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because if you read my Wikipedia, you will see that I was born in New Jersey. That's where my mother was when she went into labor. And I'm not from New Jersey. I just happened to be born there. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. And, uh, and therefore, I must be an elitist. I must be one of those fascist, Nazi, racists who, uh, who you know, come from a place of privilege. And therefore, we're all lumped in there together. You're automatically guilty. You're automatically guilty. And so what I have said for, I guess, 30 years now is this, this, this label philosophy, this label society that we're in is very dangerous. So if I can label you, I can classify you. If I classify you, I can file you away. I can put you, a box, put you in a box, put you on the shelf. I can choose to deal with you if I want to, but I can ignore you because you've been labeled. So if Larry Taunton comes on his podcast and he says something controversial, I say, yeah, but he's a racist. Yeah, he's course. a Nazi. He's a fascist. We've already categorized him. Therefore, I don't need to listen to him. Well, that's, that's dangerous in a free-thinking society. Yeah. It's important to have a Christian worldview. The question becomes, how do we build that? How do we develop that? Oftentimes, we have Bible teachers who are very faithful and teaching scripture, but don't ever quite make the connection with the outside world. Other times we have Bible teachers who don't really want to touch certain topics because they're just seen to be too toxic. At tomap.com, you are going to find a wide range of issues being addressed to help you build out that Christian worldview. They're on things from, from suffering, uh, dealing with mental health to racial reconciliation. These are all issues that you will find at tomap.com and they'll help you to build out a Christian worldview and to flourish. I hope you learn a lot from the podcast, but you can go beyond the podcast to the courses that we offer at Tome. So I hope you'll take a look at them and sign up. To get access to more than 100 Tome courses, use the code IDEAS. And for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all kinds of courses on a wide variety of subjects. Individuals with expertise, with experience in subjects that will be meaningful to you. So use the code IDEAS and for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all of them. Go to tomap.com. Back to the podcast. Uh, when, you, when you embrace that culturally and say, okay, it's okay to call somebody a racist whether they are or not. Jason Aldean's not a racist. 
to call somebody a fascist or a Nazi. I mean, that's the be-all, end-all, right? We can't call anybody anything worse than a Nazi. So most people who have no idea what fascism is or what Nazism truly was in the mid-20th century, they haven't a clue. They're, they don't have any idea. They're throwing the term, terminology around. They haven't a clue as to what any of that is. So, so it, it not only destroys conversation, it not only villainizes people who really should not be villainized, but it stops critical thought. Critical thinking is dead in the water in this country, and that's where we're in a dangerous game. Well, let's talk just a second about what the song itself is getting at, and that is the values of a small town. You, you yeah. just mentioned it, the values of a small town. We were sitting you know, in the green room having coffee. We were talking about it. And last night we talked a little bit about it too, about populists, you know, mm -hmm. how populists, which are we're just talking grassroots movements. I mean, it's really all we're talking about. We're just talking about common, decent Americans or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Dutch or French or Germans or Colombians or Brazilians, all of whom are rising up around the globe, yeah. resisting uh, uh, what they sense is uh, is a globalist agenda that's being forced down on them. And this song has become it, it may even it may even become the theme song <laughs> of a global populist revolt. It very much could. Against these kinds of people yeah. and what's going on. What would you say are the values of the small town versus that of, you know, urban urban centers where we're seeing this kind of conduct and behavior? You and I are country boys. We we come from rural America. We come from the deep south. We've been fortunate <laughs> enough to travel the world. We've been educated. We've been exposed to uh, you know, we've been exposed to some some higher education for whatever that's worth. We've we've put ourselves through the rigors of that discipline, and then we've been in a lot of population centers. I mean, from Lagos, Nigeria, to Beijing, China, to name your city, Manhattan. Okay, you go into a big city. There's just different rules there. I can remember I can remember being in Lagos, Nigeria for the first time. It's a city of 10 million people, and there's a, there's a dead body on a side of the road. In the middle of the city, there's a dead body, and somebody had taken a members-only jacket and covered his face from about the chest up. And I said, what, is, what are they going to do? This guy's been here a couple of days. He's already experiencing decomposition and bloat. Yeah. I said, well, nobody's going to touch him, because if you touch him, then somebody's going to blame you, and you're going to have to take responsibility for that dead body. I said, well, that's weird. That's odd. And they said, well, that's, that's the way it is in the city. Well, that ain't how it is in the country. Because, you know, where I come from, that's, that's, that should shock you to see yeah. something like that. These people, I was in Austin, Texas recently. And, you know, Austin, Texas, I don't think is really Texas. They certainly doesn't hold Texas values in a lot of ways. But if you're in downtown Austin, you, you, it's almost like being in zombie land. You're stepping over the, the bodies of people sleeping in the street. There's people where... You know, the, the philosophy of Austin for years has been, let's keep Austin weird. Well, when 10% of the population of Austin chooses a transient lifestyle, chooses it, that's weird. And so you have these homeless communities, you're stepping over them, but then you look up and the people coming at you, uh, you know, I, I see Seth Meyers, who's the host of the Late Late Show in, you know, late night television, walking towards me. I'm like, so Hollywood LA has met Zombieland and it's, it's clashed on the streets, you know, in Austin, Texas. It's a, it's a weird thing. That's not small. That's not, you don't see that in a small town. Now, these people step over these bodies like it's no big deal. You go out into rural America, you may not even, you might have to drive a quarter mile, half a mile before you see a neighbor. And these people, 
you know, it's small town has its politics. Small town has its feuds. You know, the Hatfields and McCoys kind of things. They, they've got this stuff, but they settle their issues. By and large, they settle their issues. Now, that doesn't mean evils don't happen in small towns. Certainly they do. But you have to admit the values are different. Those people can't imagine going to Manhattan and living in a 36-story, 70-story high-rise on top of other people when 10 million people are packed on a little island. They can't imagine that. That's not their value system. I recently did a, a show in western Kansas, and, and uh, I, I was kind of got stranded there for an extra 24 hours. And I went down and I, I went to the local restaurant that was owned by the people who had the venue where I'd done a live show the night before. And I said, can I help you guys around the kitchen? You know, do y'all need peeled potatoes or anything like that? <laughs> so I hung out in the kitchen with them and, and these two sisters, we just chatted all day long. I, uh, I drink a beer and, and just peel potatoes and, and help them do stuff. And I got to talking to them. I said, you know, does it not drive you guys crazy being in a town of population 400 and you're 30 minutes from anywhere? And they said, we love it. I mean, our kids know how to drive the truck at 12. Yeah. You know, they're plowing the fields. Or, you know, they, there's, we know who our banker is. We know everybody. We know their family. If they need something, we come get them. That's lost in America. That, that concept is so foreign to us. We talked about it at dinner last night, how small the world has gotten. I mean, for, you know, these last however many years, I can, you know, you wrote a book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days. How quickly can you get around the world now? Yeah. You used to have to get on a boat and go for months at a time just to get somewhere. Yeah, the, the, the whole challenge in the original, you know, Jules Verne, Around yeah. the World in 80 Days was that that you couldn't make it around the world in 80 Couldn't days. It. it was it was impossible to do and now you can do it and yeah. you know you can do it in no time and at the, all. And then and then the internet which has made our world that much smaller. Uh, you know we can almost travel at the speed of thought in in a lot of ways. Uh, it it's so that world becoming smaller whereas they thought that technological advance was going to make us better and better. You know that's the humanist you know, in 1914, when the, when the boys marched off to war in World War One, the humanism was the strong philosophy of the day. And the mantra was, you look in the mirror and 20 times say to yourself, every day in every way, I'm getting better. Well, World War One destroyed that philosophy, 10 and million. Yet, but yet it's back with a guy named Stephen Pinker. <laughs> right. Stephen Pinker, who's written a book called, uh, you know, the, the Better Angels of Our Nature, or something yeah. like that, about humanity is actually getting a little better. And I'm thinking... Are you an idiot? Yeah. I mean, are you paying any attention to what's happening? Well, it, what's it, happening in the world? I mean, we, we're we're only eighty years, you know, past a uh, world war that saw roughly fifty-five million people yeah. murdered, and the slaughter continues to go on in other parts of the world. But this is some of the this is some of the elitist thinking. Switching gears just slightly, why do you think that? And I'll just call them the radical left. I make a slight distinction when I say de Democrats. I'm referring to the United yeah. States. But when I say the left, I'm referring to the global equivalent. Yeah, I call them progressive rereads. There what we I go. Call them. Progressive rereads, because that's what they sound like on Twitter. Well, what's Just what's re in and screeching? What is there in your view? Because it's a global phenomenon. It's yeah. not just it's not just Democrats versus Republicans. Yeah. Uh, it's not just blue states versus red states. That phenomenon is a global yeah. phenomenon. It is an absolute contempt for the rural areas on the map. It is a contempt for so-called populace. And there's an effort to sort of paint them all as, you know, as fascists, as Nazis, this kind of thing, which is absolutely ridiculous. But in a sense, I do what I do. I mean, it's a calling 
for me, but I also see myself as something of a of a defender of those values, mm -hmm. a defender of those people. I try to be a voice for those people globally, not just in the United States, because there is an effort to put them under the thumb. What do you think's going on with that? What what's what's happening there? <clears throat> Well, I, I put it I put it like this, and, and by the way, when I call them progressive reries, that's my humorous attempt of labeling them too. We we all do our labels, right? I see where they're coming. I don't think we, in some ways, we don't live like that in the real world. But we can get to that in a minute. Here, here's here's what I see. Let me give you a weird analogy from from a pea brain here. We watch professional football. We watch the NFL, and we think the head coach is in charge. Head coach isn't in charge. The head coach he he's He's just a big guy down on the field who's supposedly making decisions. No, the front office is in charge. The league is in charge. But ultimately, if you watch the Dallas Cowboys, it's, it's Jerry Jones. It's his family. They're the, they're the cabal. They're the elitist. They're the ones who control the purse strings. Your head coach is going to be your political leader. That's the guy that they put out there. He's the puppet. He's the front man. He's the one who's going in front of the press. He's the one who's giving the narrative. And then you got the uh, the bureaucrats that are on the field. They're the ones who are not elected. They're just the ones who are appointed to go out there. We pay them the big money to take care of the policies. And then here we are. We're the fans. You got a blue jersey. I got a red jersey. We're sitting across from each other and we're screaming at each other. You know, we're 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 buying the tickets, which is the taxes we're paying, and we're paying the high price beer, and they're keeping us placated with girls in short skirts and the the gladiator show that's happening down on the field. And all the while, as long as the, as the game is going our way, we're happy fans, right? We don't understand that up there in the booth, there is a guy who's ultimately in control, and he's going to control the future of that team you're pulling for. And at the end of the day, those, those guys, they come off the field. They all, it's like professional wrestling. They all go to dinner together. They have a steak, and they, they're like, you know what, we'll play again next week. And we're sitting here taking this thing really, really seriously, right? And, and, and we are looking at one another with this major contempt. And whereas the cabal, the guys in the front office, they, they need us because they, the, they need the ticket prices paid. They don't care about us. They don't care about us. And so they love the fact that we're at each other's throats. And to the degree that they can continue creating that, that coliseum type thing where we're at each other's throats, they're happy because – you got a guy like Jerry Jones. I mean, he hasn't had really a winning football team in a long time, but you can't get a seat at AT&T Stadium. There, yeah. You can't get a seat in there on a typical Sunday in Arlington, Texas. So he's happy. He's happy. And so it's a rough analogy, but I think that's where we're at. They want to keep us at each other's throats. Now, if they can every now and then toss a dagger out on the field, and, and by that I'm saying, you know, these phrases like fascism and Nazism and and racism, and they keep tossing these things out there. Boy, it's a blood sport at this point. Yeah. And they don't care. You know, I've said forever, you know, we, we talk about the conspiracy theories that are out there, which tend to come true these days. <laughs> we seem to be batting pretty well, close to a 1,000. But I, I've always said, when you've got a mainstream media, that's the mouthpiece, right? That's the Pravda under Lenin. That, that, when they're going to tell you just enough of the story to whet your appetite, you're curious about the rest of the story, and then they leave gaps. Yeah, there's no such thing as a vacuum. Something's going to rush to fill that vacuum. Well, we start talking to one another. We have the internet now. We're having a conversation. Well, what do you think about that guy who was paddleboarding outside Obama's residence on Martha's Vineyard, and he he drowned? I mean, that sounds weird that a healthy 43 year old man in eight feet of water just drowned outside the former president. What happened? What happened? We start filling it in, and they say, "Well, you're a conspiracy theorist." No, I'm actually a critical thinker. I really want to know what's going on, and you're not telling me, so I'm going to fill in the gaps. 
So what I've said consistently for years now is they're not going to give us the information we need to be able to function and, and to be able to. And so consequently, if you start trying to fill those gaps and think with any complexity of thought, put together any philosophical syllogism, well, A and B and equal C and all of this, they're going to say, are you crazy? Are you, are you, are you one of these wild insurrectionists that doesn't believe that what they're telling you is true? You know, how dare you question the 2020 election? How dare you say that the political system is rigged, that there's fraudulent votes out there? How dare you say that the government doesn't have the best interest for you at heart? And so now you're villainized for even having these thoughts. And so here we are. Here we are in a so-called conspiracy theory culture where we just want to know the truth. But can you? Can you even know the truth? Well, and I think there's a there's another element to this, and in the whole, at least domestically, mm -hmm. um, in the United States, uh, not necessarily internationally, that the whole blue state red state phenomenon is really radical leftist values versus what are fundamentally Christian values. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that everybody in a red state is a Christian or sure. anything like that, but by and large, even the people who aren't Christians in red states are deeply influenced by that worldview. They can more or less hold those values. Yeah. And um, and those are the values that they're making war on. I mean, it's in red states that <laughs> that you find pro-lifers. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's red states that the sanctity of life actually matters. It's in red states that patriotism is still very much alive and well. It's in it's in red states that um, you know, family values are taken much more seriously. And these are all the things that they're seeking to destroy. I'll make a prediction that they will try this in a small town. That that song is going to provoke. They're they're right now in some in some dark corner of um, you know of, of of the Biden White House. They're they're figuring <coughs> out how can we get a bunch of our antifa types uh, wearing their masks and yeah. so on. Let's find a small town somewhere in America yeah. where we can burn some cars and we can have confrontations with police. It's it's coming. This kind of thing is is coming. This and, song and, and it may be a self fulfilling prophecy. It might be a self fulfilling. <laughs> you know, the song actually, the song. This this for me was the first time to see the video. The song reminds me of. Do you remember the Hank Williams Jr. song, "A Country Boy Can't Survive"? Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Because that song was was very similar messaging, in that he's telling the story of my salt my small town values yeah. versus my friend who lives in New York City. Yeah. And he says that my friend was killed with a switchblade switch knife. knife. Forty three dollars. My friend lost his life. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and he says, but a country boy can't survive. There, it's it's very very similar. This very is similar. not a new thing. Yeah. This has been going on for decades and decades, but used to. The even in media, you know, if you think about the kind of shows that we grew up with, you know, whether it's whether it's Andy Griffith or it's you know shows that we watched in rerun, like uh, like let's say Petticoat Junction or or what what was that one Green Acres, Green Acres, you know, that was in that was in rerun, but loads of others that we could think of that are much more modern than that. There was a respect for rural America, yeah. you know, one time there was a sense that it was actually quite Jeffersonian this idea that this this connectivity with the farm and with the soil and that this is what America is and that's where our values come from. It's not in the, but this is flipped so that now 
now small towns are the enemy. Now rural areas, rural people are the enemies, and they're all being painted as hateful. Um, uh, we keep saying it, but it's true. Being being painted as you know as fascist, racist, all these kinds of things, and it's it's an effort to destroy yeah. those values. And it is because at the end of the day. To usher in a new set of values, they have to destroy the old ones. Yeah. They have to destroy what matters to you, what matters to me, things that we think that are worth defending that have their root in a Judeo-Christian worldview. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. And I, and I go back to so many things. I mean, gosh, you, you, made, you got my brain working there when you mentioned Hank Williams Jr. I mean, look at Merle Haggard. Merle Haggard saying, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. You know, and, and he goes on talking about in Muskogee, Oklahoma, we don't do all of these things. You know, but I think Merle Haggard did smoke a lot of weed. He, but he, that's he, just no, a, no, no, that's think. Just another. He, he did 100% <laughs> smoke a lot of weed. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're running down my country hoss, you're walking on the fighting side of yeah. me. And then Josh Thompson, who's a lesser known, he's got a great song out there that says, you know, our houses are protected by the good Lord and a gun. And if you show up here on Welcome, you might find... You might meet them both, you know, and so th those same messaging are, is out there, and you're exactly right. I mean, look at the Beverly Hillbillies while we're on that yeah, cultural there we go. sitcom. There's, a, there's, there's another, another one. That was that was small town values suddenly meets Beverly Hills, and and the the crisis that which causes a lot of humor. You know, you take the country bumpkin and put him in the city, and you know, country mouse, city mouse, and you put them. And, and those those are across it. We we've played that. But even even more recently, Forrest Gump, 100%. which is what nineteen nineties. Yeah, Forrest Gump, the Winston Groom from Alabama, mm -hmm. who 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 wrote that book and became a movie. The message of that movie, if you really boil it down, is that Forrest is a simpleton who has ha, he has a few core values that he adheres to. And at the end of the life, all these, excuse me, at the end of the movie, all these people around him who were far more sophisticated, yeah. their lives are in tatters, yeah. in ruins. Yeah. And he has just it, it continued to maintain his simple, small-town values and live by them. And they have served him well throughout his whole life. And he's doing quite well, but these others are... you know, it, it, that Those were... Almost Hollywood tropes, honestly, that the that the small town was a source of American strength. And that narrative has switched hugely in the last decade. You've made a comment. I thinking of something you said to me before, you've even said it this morning, is you know, World War the two world wars were won by small towns. Hundred percent. And sixty percent sixty percent in of the Gulf War um uh soldiers came out of the South. Yeah. The reason why the military right now is having recruiting issues, and I mean, they're actually reducing not only the requirements, but their quotas. They can't recruit because, by and large, the people that the military recruits in America are multi-generations. My dad was in the Army. My granddad was in the Army. I'm yep, going to be in the same, Army. Same, my family. Well, now it doesn't, it doesn't work that way anymore because it's gone, to use a phrase, it's gone woke, and now they're more focused on their pride initiatives and their diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. Which has no appeal to It, it doesn't. Not to warriors. Not to warriors. No, people that are, that are supposed to go in and be killing machines, well-trained, well-oiled. Who want to be tested. Killing machines. And I, I want to push the physical limitation. You and I know a lot of veterans. I know a lot of people who have done a lot of wild stuff. I'm very close with the Special Forces community. I serve on 
the board of wheelchairs for warriors. I was on the American Valor Foundation's board before I ran for office. That, of course, is Chris Kyle's family, his parents, his brother and sister-in-law. Um, very, I'm very close with a lot of former SEALs, a lot of spec ops operators, a lot of force recon. I hear their stories. You know, I'm not the guy who says, tell me about that time you cut that guy's throat. No, I, I wouldn't do that. But you get around these guys, you hear some, you, t you hear the hell of war. You, you yeah. hear the tales. You know, you get around these guys. I was, I had Tim Kennedy, my friend Tim Kennedy, uh, who was Army Ranger. He, uh, he, was on the podcast recently. I said, where are you going when you leave here today? He goes, Sedan. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to the house. I'm getting $100,000 in cash, and I'm, I'm picking up my gear. He goes, because they just evacuated Sudan just a, two months ago. He said, there's 20,000 unaccounted for Americans in Sudan. They're all yeah. about to get killed. He said, me and a ground force of six are going to get them. And I'm like, that's, that's, that you say that now? And people don't understand that. That's not a concept that, yeah. that's palatable. Certainly not politically correct. But these guys are warriors. So they can't recruit these days. They can't recruit because people with small town values who are the people who tend to fill those recruitment quotas, they don't care about your pride flag. No, not, not interested in that. I actually is a, an interesting little segue into something that I, that I want to discuss, and that is the crisis of masculinity mm -hmm. you know, in this country. Uh, I mean, are you seeing the same thing that I'm seeing where you kind of feel like, I mean, I mean, for example, my father was an airborne ranger and um, heavily decorated. And, uh, and I find myself often thinking, you know, I, I sometimes joke with people, um, my father killed Marxists for a living. You know I mean? That's, <laughs> which, is, which is true yeah. when you get right down to it. I mean, it seems to me that the least I can do is speak out against what are quite obviously Marxist tactics yeah. that are being used in this country and where people now, it feels like uh, many men, people in general, but many men are fearful of, gosh, I'm not sure I really want to say anything because I might get canceled. People yeah. might say mean things about me you know, on the internet, on social media, I, I might get marked off the party list. I mean, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? I mean, it seems like if they were willing to defend it with their, yeah. with their lives, surely we can speak out against it. It feels to me like where, where have all the good men gone? It's two things. You and you and I get along very well because we both have a sense of irreverence <laughs> and, and our in our sense of Which humor. Which we're trying to keep off of this we, podcast. We don't. We don't. Uh, it's a holy irreverence, if you will. Uh, we, our foundations. I think of it that way. Our, our foundations remain uh, pretty secure, but but you and I don't offend one another with our humor, <laughs> and and I like that about what we have here. So, you know, when I say that when I when I watch Oppenheimer and he dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, I wanted to start chanting USA, USA. Yes. They, they probably wouldn't go over well in the theater. But, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, we, we did this. Um, it, it, is it atrocious? War is atrocious. War is hell. But we did this amazing thing and it, and it ultimately saved a lot of lives. We did it very altruistically. Probably millions of lives. Millions of lives. And, 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 and we <clears throat> did it very altruistically. Most people don't even realize it about the pamphlets we dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki days before we dropped the bomb that said, get out of town. Something's coming here that, that you have no idea. And, you know, America even then was very altruistic, even in war. But... Uh, well, the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan post-war is the most, most benevolent post-war... Yeah. My mother, who's Canadian, um, they have a joke in the family and, and Canadians is that when our economy gets bad, we're going to declare war on the United States so they'll rebuild us. Yeah. You know, this was, the, this was the Marshall Plan. This was what happened to Japan post-war is, is an astonishing accomplishment 
of civilization. Japan, MacArthur staff wrote the Japanese Constitution, yeah. which they still are governed. Still have. Still are governed by. We rebuilt Europe yeah. after, after World War II. So um, the idea of the United States as some sort of vicious aggressor in this is completely well, absurd. But, but this... Continue. No, no, I was just going to say, because that, that, before I forget it, you and I have had this conversation in private before. We're, we're basically the only military in the world that seeks to liberate, not to oppress. Yes. It's same with our police force. I, I will say, we should put in here, that has changed under Democrat presidents. True. We have been an oppressor. What we are doing in Ukraine True. right now is unconscionable. True. Uh, there's, there are no good guys in that war. We, it is our nature... To find a good guy, you know, yeah. and if 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 Ukraine's been invaded, then they must be the good guy, and Russia's the bad guy. No, they're both deeply corrupt countries. Spent a lot of time in both of them. I do know this at a very personal level. And yeah. what the United States is doing is nefarious at mm -hmm. best. But historically, what you're saying is 100 percent true. Oh, and you got to protect your money laundering yes. and your human trafficking operation and some sketchy, you know, yeah. bio labs and yeah. I, you know, the child trafficking is is incredible. We just did a podcast on that with my daughter, who is you know Ukrainian. Sure. I mean, uh, she was born um, in Ukraine. And we adopted her from Ukraine. I had to bribe every single government official but one in order to get her out of that country. But Yes, historically, the United historically. States has not been the oppressor. That's not yeah. been the case. Yeah. And I, I'm just deeply troubled with, it feels to me like many Americans, and, and, and I'm just going to focus on men for, for a moment, are all too prepared to just kind of roll over. Mm -hmm. And I talk to a lot of Christians who will say, gosh, Larry, you know, I really appreciate your podcast, appreciate what you're doing, but, you know, I think it's too late. I think we're at the tipping point. I, I, I feel like, well... Or they ask me if I feel that way. And I think, well, why would I do this if I believed that? Yeah. I, I believe I serve a great God. I believe, yeah. I, believe I, I serve a God who, with 12, defeated and changed an empire. Yeah. You know, I, uh, so, yes, I, I believe that this is a, uh, a culture war that we can win. But I'm, I'm finding it troubling that it feels that there's so many men who have withdrawn from any kind of engagement that feels slightly threatening to them. And that's not just Gen Zers and millennials. Yeah. That's, that's on up. It is. I'm Generation X. I was born in, 19, I. I was born in 1972. So I'm 50 years old. I take a huge responsibility for, for what I see culturally across the board with subsequent generations. Um, our generation, I think, has to take that responsibility. Um, I can I can blame the baby boomers for a lot of things as well. And do. And, and do. I do. Yeah. And we can get into they, this. They did start the fire, by the way, Billy Joel. <laughs> yeah, they they <laughs> absolutely did start we, the fire. We're filling this thing with cultural <laughs> references. I like this. Very popular. Um, the, uh, they did start the fire. Um, we have lived, let's, let's, let's add an element of faith in here because we, we, we keep dancing around this thing. We feminized the church in America drastically. I think so. We, we, we feminized the church in America for, for many generations. It was it's not you know, new. all the way back to the Broadman hymnals. That was, you know, uh, dad, you know, daddy was going to work six days a week and he might go to church. That's mama's. Mama's got to take kids to Sunday school and that's, that's the woman's stuff. And that's not the Christian faith. The, the Americanization, the modernization, and the commercialization of the American church is a joke. 
it's, 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 it's a tragedy because people are disconnected, they're disenfranchised, they have no sense of faith community. We, as long as the coffee's good in the lobby and the air conditioner's right in the sanctuary and the fountains are working in the parking lot and we can come in and we can watch our church pastor on some screen and everything works together for good. It is, and it is about tone. And there's, good tone. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, and I come out of there feeling good about myself. So my, I, I have numerous businesses, numerous endeavors. I'm a comedian. By, by trade, I'm a touring comedian. I've been fortunate enough to be very successful in that world of humor. I, I'm really not a comic as much as I'm a storyteller humorist. I'm kind of in the vein of, a, of a Will Rogers. And I just find observational humor in everything that's out there. No, but you also it, take very seriously a masculine. Oh, I do, hundred percent. hundred percent. You lean into that and have yeah. a little fun with it. I do. I do believe that, and I believe that uh, you know two places that when you walk in the door, you should expect to be stretched and expanded a little bit mentally, and 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 challenged and offended. One is a place where you go to hear comedy, and two is a place where you go hear preaching. The church should be that place. But both of those have been watered down. Humor has been watered down to the point because people are so easily offended now. The church has been watered down because, again, you got to keep the machine running, which is a whole other podcast we could have here. But I will say this. Masculinity, when done right, boy, it sure does, it sure does lead to a lot of freedoms and a lot of liberty. Um, there's a lot of things we worry about that we shouldn't worry about. And, again... When, when you when when so much in our culture has been feminized, see, there's there's been a war on men for a long time. Again, you just use the phrase toxic masculinity. True masculinity is not toxic. If it's toxic, it's not masculinity. Yeah. So if if no toxic masculinity is Sam Brinton and it, Rachel Levine, it's it's, right. it's it's men pretending to be women and <laughs> That's exactly. stuff like that. I mean, that is toxic. That masculinity. is very poisonous. And uh, you know, and, and on the other end, say a Dave Portnoy is a. You know, or an Andrew Tate, sure. or, or, but continue. So when you, when, you, when you take away the masculine and, you know, they boil it all the way down to, oh, my gosh, he's, got it. he's sitting in a chair with his legs spread. He's manspreading. And now he's going to explain something. Now he's going to mansplain <laughs> to us. Um, and so now there's a, there's a, they've effectively done that. I mean, again, I don't know if it's the steroids in the chicken or the soy we're drinking, but men have become very effeminate across the board in, in, in American, in first world culture, certainly. They, we've gotten so comfortable, and men have become very effeminate in regards to that. Do you ever if do Q&As? What's that? Do you ever do Q&As in any of your uh, public appearances? Yeah, we do that. Uh, we call it crowd work. We'll do crowd work where I'll put somebody on the spot, and I'll, and I'll you know. Have, have you found, I, I, you know, I'm not doing comedy or, you know, or singing as, as you are, but in a presentation, say, on a campus yeah. with students, I have noticed over the course of the last 20 years that the questions have gone from being, you know, here I am on, let's say, let's say at Georgia Tech or yeah. I'm speaking at uh, Yale Law or something like that. So very secular environments mm -hmm. and I'm prepared for hostility and I give my presentation and they would line up at, let's say there would be a mic over here or a mic over here, a mic in the middle, and they're lining up and you can feel them seething and they're ready to take you on okay fine i can handle that fight me i can take it 
but used to the, what I could expect was logical argument. You said, you know, and somebody, you know, try to break down, you know, what you, you know, there would be an exchange of ideas. These days, it's not what happens. What happens is they're, they're seething with emotion and they're not making it a logical argument anymore. It's yeah. more that, that you have spoken, you have spoken plainly to them. And I never try to be deliberately, you know, offensive. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to persuade. So you don't persuade by, you know, browbeating people. So it, to the, to the degree that I can, I'm actually trying to be gentle and laying out an argument, (laughs) but that truth is so offensive to them that it is deemed to be wrong because they don't like the way it makes them feel. Have have you, have you picked up on it in a, in a cultural shift in this way? If you, if you, if you look at my body of work, if you want to call it that, I mean, I've been in front of people my entire life. I was on television for the first time when I was three years old. Uh, and then I was an athlete, so I played ball. I was still playing in front of an audience, you know, and I played up into the higher, you know, advanced levels of college and semi-pro. And then I was, you know, I did, I was, I pastored, so I was on a, I was on a platform there. I traveled around Sand the Mountain. world. Yes, yeah, Sand Mountain, <laughs> Alabama, boy. Uh, and then, you know, I, in that platform grew and grew and grew. And then I kind of went through a, a burnout, went through a divorce, um, it had a real human crisis there where I didn't real identity. Who am I? You know, and I, I just kind of crawled into that cave at Adullam and oh, woe is me. I, you know, went under the juniper tree and asked God to kill me. I did all the all the biblical models of, of trying to just die in obscurity. God wouldn't let me do that. So uh, I knew that I had a voice, but I didn't know how to use that voice. And so God found me and gave me an opportunity to have a platform to speak. Now, I wound up on radio, wound up on television. And again, just weird way of God just working these things out. And somebody just said, hey, we want you to do this television show. And I wound up doing a television show for three seasons on, on cable network. And then, then I had this weird idea. I said, you know, social media, that's almost like owning your own TV network. Why don't I just put content on there? And so I said, well, what, what should I do? And I said, well, I'm just going to sit in my truck, put my camera for, phone on the dashboard, and I'm going to say what's on my mind for 60 seconds, and I'm going to put it out there. Well, the thing went wildly viral. I mean, it went incredibly viral, billions of views later, and, and here we are. And so to the point that you're asking, the biggest pushback that I ever got was these people said, you are a big mouth, dogmatic redneck who thinks his opinion matters. I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm actually trying to put common sense wrapped in humor in front of you and then let you deal with it. But people don't like that because they feel like you're telling them or preaching at them and telling them how they should think and how they should live. No, no, I'm just putting this out there for your consideration. Now, I believe it. And I'm pretty dogmatic in the way I deliver it because I do have a conviction that it's true, but I'm also going to put a little humor in there and make fun of it. And, and maybe you can, in the middle of laughing at me, you can say, hmm, what he said. Because if you come to one of my comedy shows, I fully intend for you to walk out of there thinking about something. Yeah, you're, you're using humor. You're, you're uh, as a friend of mine likes to put it, you're, you're a comedian who wants to be taken seriously. Yeah. 
You know, and, and there's a lot of guys historically who did that in that trade. I mean, George Carlin was one, regardless of what you felt about this person as a person. But uh, George Carlin was a genius because he did that. Uh, Robin Williams was another one in that way. Richard Pryor was that way. Ricky uh, Gervais. It, yeah. yeah. It, so there's a, there's a lot of guys out there who today are just silly. Yeah. You know, they use the F-bomb as a comma in a sentence. That's not funny. And, and you know, it's it, whereas George Carlin knew how to use those words strategically. Yeah. And they were genius in the way that he did it. Now, my mother didn't think that was true, <laughs> yeah. but but I could see the genius of it. So the point is, when when you put something out there that sounds dogmatic, they don't. It doesn't feel good to them, because again, critical thinking is dead. So the ability to 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 take a complex thought, and here's where I try to start with something when I. When I say something or I hear something and it disagrees with me, and sometimes it's my own thought in my own mind, my first thought is I always go, how am I wrong on this? Before I say this, where am I wrong? Because if I can prove myself wrong, I'm beginning to think critically. I'm beginning to think outside of myself a little bit. And so... If I can reason that out in my head, then, then okay, now I think this is something I can take and put in front of somebody else with confidence, and we can at least dialogue about yeah. it. You know, our country was founded that way. Our country was founded with, with you know, these 19-year-old boys who had these genius minds, and, and they'd write these things like the Federalist Papers, and they'd write them under a pseudonym and put them in a newspaper article, and people would read them and go, we don't know who's writing this, but it's good stuff. Sounds like freedom. This is interesting. And so these 19, 20, 21-year-old boys were, were writing these things. And, and we look back at that, and we think that these were these old men that founded this country. I mean, you know, Benjamin Franklin was the, was the great patriarch. He was elderly at, you know, 60. And, and he, was, he was the old man. Uh, George Washington. Hey, let me go back to an earlier point. Dude, you know George Washington? You're talking about a guy from a small town. When they wanted him to serve a third term as president, he said, no, no, I'm going back to the farm. Yeah. I'm going back, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. I just want to spend the rest of my life making whiskey. I can get behind that. Like that that's a small-town value as far as I'm concerned. He traded the power of the big world and went back to the farm. But, but when you look at these guys who founded this country, they didn't all get along. They, they debated, and they dialogued, and they disagreed, and they discussed, in some cases, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton. They shot each other. Yeah. So they, they didn't necessarily like each other. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson lived in a feud. Um, and, but yet they were able to disagree, dialogue, discuss, and come back together. And say we hold these truths to be self-evident. Exactly. And they yeah. put this idea out yeah. there, a very fragile idea, as de Tocqueville said, if America ceases to be good... I can't. You're throwing around references to the Federalist and the Tocqueville. Dude, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how smart I am. <laughs> See, that's why. That's another way that it's another way, Larry. And you know this. This is why I wear the cowboy hat. I want to be underestimated. I, I want people to underestimate. Well, me. that's an old. You know, it's it's very funny. Um, I was explaining this to someone recently. That it's an old Southern tactic, actually. <laughs> it is. It's an yeah. old Southern tactic to pretend. I, I do it a lot subconsciously that you pretend not to know things that you know yeah. because it's part of the way, you, you know, I, I recall uh, reading an article some years ago in Fortune 500 about how so many companies are run, disproportionate number of Southerners run so many of these, these companies. And they were talking to a Harvard business professor who said, I think the reason is because they deliberately sandbag. 
Yeah. They pretend they don't know what's going on. And then at the end of the business deal, they've cut your throat and taken your, taken your shirt. No, it's, it's very true. And you do that. You're obviously a very bright guy. You like playing into the, you know, into the cowboy shtick, not because you aren't really that, um, but you're having a little bit of fun with that. But you're, you're thoughtful, and, and these things do matter to you. I mean, because I know you. I mean, I'm, I know sure. you away from the set. I, sure. I know you personally. I know this is a core of who you are. You're, you're, you're not projecting something that, that, that you aren't. You feel very passionate on the issues. Yeah, I, and, and I try to, like, I appreciate people. You do this, and I admire this about you. Um, there's other people that are that are friends of mine. Mike Rowe is a, is a popular name out yeah, there. You know, sharp guy. He's so sharp, and and a lot of guys just think he crawls around in sewers no, for television. He's, he's a very it, sharp guy. He, you know, Mike is a is a classically trained opera singer. People yeah. don't know these. I mean, he's a very sophisticated guy. It, and you get around him, and I was like, you know, I admire those conversations with people like you, people like Mike, and others who they think around the back door. So yeah. so where where most people come in the front door with the obvious. There's an approach that's taken that you go, dang, I never turned that rock that angle and looked at it. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. So when I can get around people like that, one of your neighbors in Birmingham is a good friend of mine. He's a historian, um, Brian McClanahan. He's a, he's, a, he's a Yankee, but he writes Southern history, and he's not popular opinions. I love reading guys like that. And, and it's like when we can think like that. So let's go back to the original point. You said, is it too late for our society? Well, I wouldn't do what I do if it was. Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't do what you do if it was. Never. I wouldn't continue reading the books. I read three books a week. I used to read more. Now I just don't have to. Now, now I'm old and I go to sleep. But I, I, I read a lot. I wouldn't read. I wouldn't try to discipline my mind. I wouldn't listen to people. I mean, we joke about it. And for those of you who don't know, I went to see the Barbie movie. Okay, I, I didn't want to go see the Barbie movie. Yeah, but sure I, you didn't. I, <laughs> I, it changed my paradigm. Okay, <laughs> but let me. But I went there and I was like, okay, I'm willing to go see things that I'm probably not going to agree with, but I want to be able to have an honest discussion about certain things. You're interested in the cultural. Yeah. The cultural well, commentary, think, and I think CJ had some role. <laughs> My girlfriend is beautiful, and she knows how to strong arm me. I, I, th I, and, think she, I think she played a role in you going to see Barbie, well, but you know, we'll give you a pass. Yeah, and, you didn't and, go by yourself. Anyway. It's okay. I mean, I'm, you didn't I, go with a gay buddy or anything, so well, I guess I mean, it's all right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm soundly metrosexual. Look at these shoes I'm wearing. But no, I, I, I look at this world we're in, we're in, and you you brought up a great point. You know, Jesus took eleven. And ultimately, 12, when, when Saul of Tarsus was added in, you know, he had 12. One was a bad egg. And he, he winds, up, winds up with these uneducated fishermen, people who, if you understand the, the, the rabbinical nature of Israel in the first century, these were rejects. These were people who didn't make the NBA because, again, there was a saying, you know, they, they all went to a rabbinical school up to about what we would consider seventh grade, and then they rejected them. You didn't get to go to high school. They said... They would say if you're rejected from the from being a rabbi, which was again was being the great in that society, they said, "Go home, have a trade, and pray that your son may become a rabbi." You were rejected. So when Jesus looked at these fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and said, "Come follow me," that was the rabbi, the teacher who was saying Populists. to them, was, "Yeah," was saying to them, "Hey, I accept you. The system rejects you." 
but I accept you. Now come follow me. That come follow me, there was a phrase in the first century, a rabbinical phrase said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And so what they were saying was, may you follow your rabbi so closely as a disciple that the dust he kicks up walking down the street covers you. That's how close you are to him. And so these men followed him. And the fact that you could turn upside down the entire known world in the face of the Roman Empire with 11, 12 uneducated men without a television, telethon, telephone, just tell a person. And they were, they were willing to go out and literally give their lives, not for a lie, not for something that was a hoax, not for something that was, you know, some conspiracy. I, I'm not getting boiled in oil for a lie. I'm not being crucified. I'm not being beheaded for that. I'm not laboring, you know, on, on the Isle of Patmos or in a Roman prison for that. I'm, I'm not doing those things for a lie. Uh, it's hard, we're hard-pressed to do it for the truth. Those were successive references to Peter, Paul, John, <laughs> and uh, who else did we have well, in there? Philip. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that was successive references to all that. Yeah. I picked up on that. Continue. Yeah, so, so here we are. It, it, you know, here we are. Most of us don't even want to live for the truth. Live for the truth. And these men were dying for the truth. So here's what I said on a recent episode of somebody else's show. I said, there, there's, there's a verse that we don't like to read that says that these men, you said, what was their secret? Well, yeah, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were convinced of the truth, but it says they loved not their life even unto death. In the first world, we've gotten so comfortable. We really love our lives. We love our comforts. We, we have, we've become an Epicurean society. Very much so. Yeah, Will Durant, historian Will Durant, um, made this profound observation. He said, um, nations are born stoic and die Epicurean. Mm. And, uh, you know, you were just talking about, you know, our founding. You know, our founding was, was that wasn't literally uh, stoic philosophers, yeah. but it was stoic in the sense of, of what you, it was, it was disciplined. It was, it had a vision. It was hard work. And we've become an epic, not exactly hedonist, we're tilting towards hedonist, but we are an Epicurean society. And the Epicureans were all about the avoidance of pain. Mm -hmm. It was all about comfort. And that's where we are. How would you respond to somebody, though, you know, on this, I, I, I don't really want to interrupt your, your train of thought here, other than to ask this question, what do you say to guys out there who are listening who are uh, maybe of that view that, you know, gosh, you know, Chad, uh, you're asking me to stand up and say something. I may, I might not get that promotion, or, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I might have people say, you know, bad things about me on Twitter. I mean, what, what do you say to guys like that? I, I encounter people on social media all the time that are kind of hiding behind, whether it's a keyboard warrior or whatever, but they're hiding behind a fake profile or yeah, a fake picture. All the and all time. Kind of stuff. But I get the messages for years. I've gotten the messages where people say. You say the things I can't say. And I said, why can't you say them? And they said, well, I may lose my job or whatever. And I say, I'm not wired that way. I'm the kind of guy, if, it, if I have a conviction about it, I'm going to say it. I've lost things. I've, I've, I mean, I could, be, I could be further ahead in whatever career, a well, lot and, further. And what people don't realize about a world like yours and mine is they think – that you can't lose things. So they right. think, well, it's your job to go out there and say those things. Right. You can lose sponsors. I, I can lose a lot of things. You can lose, I have lost a lot of things. There, there are venues across this country, theaters across this country that I used to go to and fill up. And I mean, I know I made those places a lot of money. They won't have me back now. They won't have me back because they're like, oh, it's not going to be a good fit. No, it's just not a good fit for you because, you know, you signed your email with a pronoun identifier thing on there, and you just think that I'm going to come in there and offend your delicate sensibilities. I was just disinvited from but, speaking to a um, a group in uh, Palm Beach. Yeah, 
because they decided they didn't they didn't like the thesis of the very book they asked me to come and speak on. <laughs> it was so funny. And I said, listen, it was apparently it was an academic in the group, yeah. a university professor who was the one who said, we can't have this guy come and speak. I said, can can you see how absurd this is yeah. that he's a university professor? Supposedly, I mean, the marketplace of ideas. I'll be willing to do this. Turn my presentation into a discussion with your professor. Yeah. I'd be more than happy to take him on. <laughs> that they did, He did not want to do that. No way. Because they just want to shut you down. So the reality is, yes, you can lose things. It's not like... It's not like you don't take any risks in doing cancel, your show. If they can cancel Mel Gibson. Tucker they, Carlson. It, it, Tucker Carlson. Fortunately, those guys have money. Ice Cube. I mean, you know, we were sitting here and we we're just watching an interview with Tucker Carlson and Ice Cube. That's the interview you never in thought a, was going to. In a car. In a car. And, I mean, they're actually saying some really profound things. And, and you're I mean, wondering, is Seinfeld driving? Yeah, exactly. Where's the coffee? So if they can cancel those guys, and certainly they can, you know, they can cancel Ed and accounting. Of course. And so that guy lives in fear of that. But I always say this. I say, listen, guys, we, we make such a god out of money. We really do. And incomes. And let me tell, let me tell you something, guys. I, a lot of things, you can ask me what masculinity is as a side note. I can tell you a lot of things masculinity is not. And that is not finding your value in your possessions and, and your money and your bank account. It's just just saying. Yeah, it's there's so many things. It's <laughs> not. And so, but men think that. I mean, they live in a fear of that. And I and I understand it. So I have the grace there to to appreciate what you're dealing with. But if I have an opportunity to talk to people, especially men, I say, listen, you, you really need to know where you come from. That's your history. You need to know who you are. That's your identity. You need to know where you're going. All these things play together. That is your destiny. And you need to know what you're going to leave behind. That's your legacy. So, so if you know where you came from, I mean, everybody didn't always cut. We don't always have a good history, you know. Uh, we didn't, maybe our parents weren't that great. Maybe our dads weren't that great or grandparents. Maybe we don't have that good of a history. But you can change that. And if you can get comfortable in your own skin, that's a huge thing for men. So many men are so insecure. They don't, they're not comfortable in their own skin. Um, then, then you're going to have a boldness to speak and say some things. So how do you want to change this world? How do you want to change this culture? Well, you, you better get an honest look at history, yours and the one around you, and, you, and you better get an honest look at who you are and where you're going. Because here's the thing, this house of cards that we're seeing propped up right now is going to fall. There's bad philosophies out there. They're going to fail. I mean, you would think by now that communism would be such a failed idea that nobody would ever utter the word ever again. I mean, a hundred million dead and a century of death and blood and uh, horrors. Uh, you would think that communism... Oh, but, they didn't do, but they didn't do it they right. They didn't do it right, and they didn't do it with the right people. And, you know, I, I understand, yeah. But, you know, the idea that, that socialism is even still tossed around is amazing to me. We keep regurgitating bad ideas and trying to recycle them. But yet here we are. It's We're, like Terrell Owens' career. <laughs> you know, you know it's, it's, it, there's always that coach who goes, yeah. I can fix it. I can do something I with can this fix guy. It. I can do something with this guy. That is great. Um, but the house of cards always falls because there's a fault line and there's a wind and it just can't stand up. I mean, Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7. He said, you're going to build on a foundation of sand and great will be the fall. Uh, the pendulum is going to swing the other way. question is, and I'll, and I'll say this and I'll be quiet. The question is, are you ready for it when the spring breaks? Are, are you ready to rebuild a society? Are you really ready to rebuild with common sense? Are you really prepared to put the tools together to rebuild what's going to happen? Because it's gonna, this one's going to be tragic. 
this 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 breaking point is going to cause a lot of loss. Just look at the the, the gender the, the the sexual mutilation of genitals we're doing to children and confused people that are 18, 19, 20 years old. Are they adults technically? Yes, but we know the prefrontal cortex isn't developed. I'm 50 years old. I've changed my sense of identity 30 times. I mean, I, there's no, I, 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 I'm like a goose. I wake up in a new world every day. I can't imagine cutting my genitals off and saying, I'm going to be okay with this in 30 years. Picking up the pieces of that tragedy, are we even prepared for what's coming? Well, let's, let's just think for a second uh, like this. At the at the end of, of World War II, I, I've been to many of the Nazi concentration sure. camps, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Mittelbaud Dora, Mauthausen, uh, um, uh, numerous others. And at the end of the war, I'm not sure if the I'm not sure if they did this in the Russian zone, but what the Americans did in the camps that they liberated, they went to the Burgermeisters, the, mm -hmm. the mayors of those towns, and to the people who lived in that town, and they said, you will walk through this camp, and you will bury the bodies. Mm -hmm. They said, no, we won't. And they, at, at the point of a gun, said, no, no, you will. You will. We're going to march everyone in, this, in, in these towns of an adult age through these camps, and you will be forced to pick up those bodies and to bury them. We will see that you do it. We want you to see what you were party to. Mm -hmm. I, I often reflect on that, and I think, let us just suppose that we're invaded by a, um, an enemy that actually had a moral core. Mm. And they said, we're going to march all of you Americans who said nothing through the Planned Parenthoods. And we're going to say... Or, did you say nothing while this was going on several blocks away? We're going to walk, we're, we're going to make you look at the mutilated bodies of adolescents yeah. when you said nothing as their sex organs were removed. Yeah. I I do not want to be counted on the side of those who said nothing. And when I think of men who are out there going, well, you know, there's not much I can do. Can, can you change one life? Can you affect one life? Is there, is there a young person out there whose life is, I mean, if I'm an adolescent and I have such a foolish parent, fortunately I did not, but if I had such a foolish parent who was dressing me like a girl right. and giving me hormones and was contemplating taking me. Have you seen one of these videos of a dad who's kind of made to look like, you know, very fun and so on? He's taking his son yeah. to have his genitals removed and to be turned into a girl. It's, it, it was, he did it. The video is made to feel very whimsical and fun, and it's for social media approbation. Yeah. And I'm thinking, this is a heinous crime that we're observing here. This is child molestation, child abuse of the highest order, mm -hmm. and people are liking it. And they're fighting for it. And they're fighting for it, and they're and retweeting it. fighting against it. you for saying anything about yes. it. Yes, and I'm thinking, when I stand before God, I want to be able to say I did all that I could do against right. this kind of stuff. And when I think of people out there who are unwilling to say anything, I just say, look, maybe you can't win the war, but can you... Can you win a single battle? Can you change? Can you prevent these things from happening to a single child? Yeah. You made a reference before we started taping. We're talking about distillers that was taking 50 years. I, I, and they wouldn't even We're taste, talking about cognac. Yeah, cognac. They wouldn't even taste their product that they started. 
I, I'll go one more. When they built the Cathedral of Milan, that took 600 years to build. Yeah, can, not you, incredible. can you imagine working at the beginning of that? And you're like, oh, we're not going to finish this. 600 years. What, 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 if, what if 300 years in, but you're they, laboring? They thought generational, and we don't. They, they don't. We don't think generational. If, if you look at, ah, oh, there's so much. We don't have time, but you're this, exactly right. I, I've said over and over again, nations and generations. You've got to think nations and generations. You know, the, bright, the light that shines the farthest away, that touches those people who need to hear truth and you know whether you call it missions or missionary work or humanitarian aid or whatever the light that shines the farthest away shines the brightest at home yeah. by very nature if we're shining a bright light we're going to touch nations but we also because of the truth that we're speaking we should be reaching generations if we're not thinking about that legacy that i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. then we're, we're it's a failed cause it's 100%. a failed cause so you're, you're you're on the scaffolding you're putting the brick in the wall and you may not live to see the end, but as you alluded to earlier, you and I both believe this. There is a God who is on the throne. There is a God who is in control. There's a God who's not only merciful, but he is just. And the pendulum will swing. And, and <laughs> you, can, you can talk about all the things from climate change to societal ills to all of these things. I, I don't know Jason Aldean's heart. I, I, maybe he is a racist. I don't think he is, but I, I don't know Jason Aldean's heart. But I do know that 85% of all Planned Parenthood facilities are within walking distance of black urban communities. And that right it's there a, is the... It's a black genocide. That ultimately, to Without me, when Margaret Sanger says we're going to pluck them like weeds, that to me is racism. I, I know what that is. And ultimately, that leads to, to, to death, tragically, by the millions. But nobody's talking about that. See, if I can't speak out just for the most innocent among us, whether it's the children that are being mutilated or abused by a parent with Munchausen syndrome by proxy, or an unborn baby that has no voice at all, then, then what is my purpose here? Amen. And I, I'll use a, a, a little example of what you're talking about. You know, in France, particularly in the south of France, um, many of these country uh, uh, roads are covered, they're lined with a canopy of beautiful trees. They're plane trees, P-L-A-N-E trees and you know many of those were planted in the Napoleonic era mm. which is incredible the people who planted those never stood in their shade <laughs> and um, I like to think of my work uh, your work as the work of a Christian as we are we are planting trees in whose shade we shall never stand but but future generations will have the opportunity to stand in them but we must be be faithful with the planting. Yeah, Chad, great to have you on the show today. I have Just thoroughly fantastic. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Always.